0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Real Estate CPA podcast. It's going to be a little bit different today. Brandon and I are going to be discussing a new guide we just put out on the real estate professional status. And we're just going to start from the top. And we're going to start with an introduction to what is REPS, what is the real estate professional status, also known as REPS, and why it is so crucial that you understand these rules.
1: Yeah, and we've we've talked about real estate professional status multiple times in the past on multiple podcasts, and uh, sometimes specifically about real estate professional status, and then other times just kind of indirectly through our conversations. But we felt the we felt that we we wanted to put out a guide. Uh, it's twelve thousand words. It is definitely not light bedtime reading by any means. (laughs) Uh, But we felt that it was necessary because we've seen over the years a lot of inconsistency related to uh, the information that's out there on real estate professional status, as well as advice that tax advisors provide their clients with on real estate professional status. And as we've grown in our expertise on Section 469 and really anything real estate tax related, we've started to identify those inconsistencies more and more and more uh, so what, what we wanted to do is create this guide to kind of set the expectation of what it actually takes to qualify as a real estate professional status or for, for real estate professional status. And the one thing that we wanted to emphasize in this guide is that it's a lot harder to do than you probably were originally taught. Whatever you read, whether your advisor gave you the information, you read it online, you watched a video or whatever. It's probably a lot harder to achieve real estate professional status than, you, than, than the expectation that you walked away with from wherever you got that information. And that's kind of the crux of why we put this together. We wanted to show you what you actually need to do to qualify as a real estate professional. But So, so as Tom mentioned, we're going to walk through the guide on today's podcast. We're going to start with this introduction section on why it's important to be a real estate professional. And, and I think I'll, I'll take a stab at kind of explaining that. The idea is to create non-passive rental losses. So section 469 of the Internal Revenue Code says that any, any activity that you don't materially participate in and all rental activities are passive by default. And to get around the passive activity limitations you have to qualify as a real estate professional. There's a couple ways you can do it, but the main way is to qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes. And that's important because if you don't qualify as a real estate professional, then your rental losses will remain passive and the rental losses can only offset rental income or gain on sale from a rental activity. Any excess rental losses are carried forward. They're suspended and they're carried forward until it can be used in the future. They're carried forward indefinitely. So you don't lose them. You just don't get to take them today. And for for real estate investors, that's a big deal because if I go buy a you know three hundred unit or three hundred three hundred thousand uh, dollar like triplex or something, that triplex can produce losses even though I have positive cash flow. Right, I can show operating income of ten thousand dollars, but after depreciation, I can tell the IRS that I actually lost two. My tax loss—that's the passive loss we're talking about most real estate is going to show a tax loss and we can run cost segregation studies to accelerate that tax loss. So real estate is a nice way to earn positive cash flow while also sheltering my income from taxes, but the losses are passive. So if I don't have passive income or if I don't sell a passive activity at a gain, then the $2,000 loss in this example that I tell the IRS that I have, gets suspended and carried forward. So the next thing that we shift to is, well, how do we use that loss? And there's a few ways that you can do it. But what we're going to be talking about today is qualifying as a real estate professional for tax purposes. If you qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes, then you can take that $2,000 loss as non-passive. You essentially recharacterize it as non-passive. And, and then I get to claim that against my W-2 income, my business income, whatever whatever other type of income I have, there's no limit at that point. So I have to get to that non-passive classification. The first step is qualifying as a real estate professional. The second step is materially participating in my rental activities.
0: Yeah, and I just want to jump in there real quick and just just, uh, just add that there will actually be a limit in 2021. Um, and I believe it's until 2025. Uh, Do the excess loss limitations. If you're single, you'll only be able to take up to $250,000 of losses against your non-business income. Uh, if you're married, that's five hundred thousand, and there's some nuances to that, but that's the general, uh, that's the gist of it. Um, going into twenty twenty one, something you'll want to be aware of for people who are real estate professionals. Um, but
1: yeah, yeah. So section four sixty one L is what Tom is referencing, and we actually didn't put that in the guide. We chose not to just because we wanted to kind of wait until the end of the year to add that to add that section. Um, one of the big questions that I have is if you do qualify as a real estate professional, does that automatically put you into the 461L bucket? And uh, that's what we have to do a little bit more exploration on. But if it does, then Tom is exactly right. You've got that limitation. So you can't go take a million dollars of real estate professional losses uh, or non-passive losses at that point.
0: So, you know, kind of just wanted to jump in and, and, and give you give everybody a brief overview of why the passive loss rules were put in place in the first place and how the real estate professional status kind of came to be. Um, so back in the 80s, uh, tax shelters were rampant and what highly paid professionals like doctors and lawyers would do is, you know, they'd be, you know, go about their day jobs, they'd go purchase a rental property or invest in a syndicate as what many of us are familiar with. And then they would just take the losses right against their ordinary income. And I think there was one case where someone took like $800,000 of losses. Anyway, some significant amount wiped out their income, caused this big uh, to-do, and uh, Congress and the powers that be did not like that. And they decided to introduce the passive loss rules uh, to stop that from happening. And like Brendan said earlier, um, if all businesses in which you don't materially participate in are passive and all rental activities are, are by default passive. Uh, because the thought process was that there's not that much to do with a rental property. Uh, so what happened was over the next few years, um, people who were working full-time in real estate uh, begin, began to complain and began rightfully so and say, hey, wait a second, I work full-time in real estate maybe I'm a developer, maybe I'm in construction, maybe I'm a broker, whatever the case was, uh, why can't I take my losses from my real estate business, my rental business against the active income I have in other areas? Uh, but if a doctor or a lawyer shows a loss in their practice, uh, then they could take that, that loss against their income. That's not fair. Uh, so then uh, the real estate professional rules were put in place, the real estate professional status. Um, basically, um, to help people who are working full-time in real estate uh, take their losses against their active income. It was only fair. And as you can see by the rules, which we'll talk about in just a second, and how to qualify a, a, for a real estate professional status, it actually makes it pretty difficult to qualify unless you are full-time in real estate.
1: Yeah. And again, just to kind of emphasize the whole point of qualifying as a real estate professional today is to make your rental losses non passive. And if you can achieve that non passive status, then what you can do is go on an acquisition spree and you can cost segregate the properties that you're acquiring. So I could buy a $1 million, you know, 20 unit apartment complex. I can run a cost segregation study on it, and thanks to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I can now 100% depreciate probably 20 to 30% of the acquisition price. We're talking about a two dollars to $300,000 first year bonus depreciation deduction, which is going to create a two dollars to $300,000 loss. The question is, is that loss passive or non-passive? If I qualify as a real estate professional for tax purposes and if I materially participate in my activities, or my rental activities then that 's a non passive loss and if I can take a two hundred thousand dollar non passive loss against my other income streams i 'm probably looking at saving seventy eighty ninety thousand dollars in taxes between federal and state unless you 're in California because they don 't conform to real estate professional status <laughs> but everybody, everybody else that 's kind of what you 're looking at so the economics are really good i mean we 're talking about you know an eighty thousand dollar payday on a million dollar uh, acquisition, which is nice, but you have to you have to do it right it's the it's a highly litigated area of the tax code there's hundreds of court cases on this where people have not done it right and we're going to go through some of those a little bit later on and like tom said you have to actually be participating in real estate the whole the number one thing that you should take away up to this point of the podcast is that the whole reason that real estate professional status was added into the code right so real estate professional status was added into the code after the passive activity loss limits were implemented. This is a few years after real estate professional status is added in to help people that are already in real estate full-time take their rental losses. It was not intended to help people that are high income earners in non-real estate businesses or activities game the system. So it's not intended to game the system. You have to actually be in real estate and that is what trips a lot of people up. And that's what trips a lot of the advisors that we've talked to up as well.
0: Yeah. One thing I was throwing there, the best way to look at it is if you want to become a real estate professional, then you should become a real estate professional. You have to actually assume the role. It's uh, Sometimes it's a lifestyle shift. Sometimes it's a business or investment strategy shift, but uh, you do have to become that real estate professional.
1: Yeah. We, we've seen a lot of mistakes and a lot of Questionable things, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, but you do have to become the real estate professional. Otherwise, you, you're going to lose in tax court. Tax, the IRS, the auditors, tax court—they're—they're they're all trying to assess credibility. So you have to be a credible person, and the only way that you're legitimately going to prove to anybody that you're credible is if you're actually doing this stuff. Anyway, let's let's jump on to the exceptions to the passive activity loss rules. So, Section 469, as we said defines a passive activity as any trade or business in which you do not materially participate and any rental activity, except for the rental activities provided under IRC section 469C7. Now, we're not going to talk about the, the there's, there's multiple ways that you can avoid the passive activity loss rules one on entire disposition, two, if you're earning less than $100,000, then, and then also between $100,000 and $150,000. We're not going to talk about those two exceptions. We're just going to focus on qualifying as a real estate professional today uh, because that is Section 469C7. Before we dive into real estate professional status specifics, I want to briefly touch on short-term rentals. If you, When I say short-term rentals, I mean Airbnb or VRBO type properties. If you own an Airbnb or VRBO property and you rent the property out, and it doesn't have to be Airbnb or VRBO, if you rent the property out for seven days or less on average per tenant, you do not have a rental activity under section 469 of the code. This is documented in Treasury Reg section 1469, 1TE3, 2 cap A. So you do not have a rental activity under section 469 of the code. Remember section 469 says if you don't materially participate in a trade or business activity, then it's passive and all rentals are passive. So if we don't have a rental under section 469 of the code, because we've rented it seven days or less then we're only looking at that first option, right? The material participate option. So what this means is we don't have to qualify as a real estate professional to make our losses or our our activity, our short-term rental activity, non-passive. So I can buy Airbnb properties, and I can have a full-time job, or I can be running a business full-time. I can buy these Airbnb properties, rent them out seven days or less per tenant on average, and I can have a non-passive activity as long as I materially participate in the activity. And we're going to touch on material participation in a second, but the key point here is you can take your rental losses, quote-unquote rental, losses as non-passive against your income without qualifying as a real estate professional as long as you are running short-term rentals. The next question I probably typically get is is this a schedule C or schedule E activity? It's only going to be on schedule C if you provide substantial services to your tenants while they stay at the property. Otherwise, it's on schedule E. So, if you are turning the property over and you're you're cleaning it up, you're cleaning it up after the tenants out, Those are not substantial services. Substantial services are like showing, I I rent your property. You show up every day with breakfast. You're touring me around. You're giving me hiking tours and boating tours and you're cleaning my sheets. That's substantial services while I stay at your property. But if you're doing that, if you're cleaning it after I leave, that's not substantial. So that's a Schedule E activity then. So you can be on Schedule E. You can have non-passive losses. Uh, Really best of both worlds. So critical point, If you have a short-term rental, you you do not have a rental activity under section 469. All we're looking at now is do you materially participate in your activity to make it non-passive? Another critical point is if you do have a short-term rental that is excluded from the definition of a rental activity, you also can't count the hours that you spend in your short-term rental activity towards real estate professional status. It's a huge point of confusion that we see. Uh, and that we just want to make that clear. There's several court cases that we document in the guide that, that will explain this further. So you, if I have a short-term rental and I spend 300 hours on it, I cannot use those 300 hours towards real estate professional status.
0: All right. So with that being said, we now understand that short-term rentals are not going to help you qualify as a real estate professional. So now, now the next question is, what will help you qualify as a real estate professional? So There are two parts of the real estate professional status test that you must meet in order to take losses from your rental properties against your other income. And the first one is that you spend at least 750 hours in a real property trader business. And we'll go over what those are in just a moment. And more than half of your total working hours must be spent in a real property trader business. As you can see, this is intended uh, largely for people who would be working full time in real estate. Be- and,
1: and I want to jump in here real quick, Tom, because I think that the, that the, that a really important word or, or phrase here is it's a real property trader business in which you materially participate. Cause we we've seen some confusion around people thinking that they need 500 material participation hours and then the remaining 250 can be of anything else. And we're going to go over this in a second, but there's no such thing as anything else. All 750 hours for real estate professional status must be quote-unquote material participation hours. Technically, it's not called material participation hours. It's called personal service hours in a trader business in which you materially participate. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that.
0: No, absolutely. Definitely an important, clarification there. And so that's the first part. Doing that, uh, spending at least 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business will qualify you as a, as a real estate professional. But that means absolutely nothing. Nothing does not help you at all unless... unless nothing. You, nothing? Nothing? What
1: nothing. do you mean it means nothing? I just spent 750 hours qualifying as a real, pro, as a real estate professional. What do you mean it means nothing?
0: Well, it just, it means that you're a real estate professional, but in order to take the losses from your rental activities against your, well, basically to turn those rental losses non-passive, you have to prove that you materially participate in your rental activities. So in other words, if you're a broker, you're an agent out there, you're working, you're probably qualifying as a real estate professional because you're probably working 750 hours or more and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. However, unless you're materially participating in your rental activities, it's not going to help you.
1: It's funny because this is where we get the the uh, pushback from our clients that are that are full time in real estate and they're, they're, they they want to claim real estate professional status because we make them t- we make them keep a time log. And they go, I don't want to keep a time log. I, I syndicate full time. I. Uh, I'm a real estate broker full time. I don't want to keep a time log. And we go, well, then we're not claiming it for you. Because working full time as a real estate agent or a broker or a syndicator does not necessarily mean that you're materially participating in your real in your real rental real estate activities. And so we need to see the time log because that's ultimately what the IRS is going to ask for. That's what the tax court's going to ask for. And uh, it doesn't have to be anything incredible, it can be your it can be a Google Calendar. But there's got to be something substantial. And this is where we get a lot of the pushback. Um, and typically, once we explain it to people, they're totally fine. But yeah, but we make our, uh, our folks that are even full-time in real estate keep that time log. <laughs> absolutely,
0: absolutely. Very important. So one thing I want to touch on is what is a real property trader business? So remember, 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. And this includes, ready? Real estate property development, redevelopment, construction, reconstruction, acquisition, conversion, rental, operation, management, leasing, or brokerage. So, if you're in one of those trades or businesses, that will count. That will basically help you qualify as a real estate professional. Now, that is or where- multiple or,
1: or or multiple trades or businesses. Like I could be a uh, I could be on the acquisition side. I could be in management. I could be leasing and brokering, and I can combine all my hours of all my participation hours together for the purposes of meeting the 750 hour test and the greater than half your time test.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where the confusion comes in for some of those people who are full time in real estate. You could, you could be working in any of those businesses, as Brendan had said before, but unless you're materially participating in your rental activities, it's not going to matter. So that's a tough thing
1: to explain to somebody too. <laughs> yeah, I've made 300 K uh, brokering deals. What do you mean? I can't claim my rental losses, man you should have talked to us sooner. You don't, you don't, you didn't materially participate in your rental activities. There's no way that we can just because you're a real estate agent full time or, or any of construction guy, full time, flipping full time, wholesaling full time. doesn't matter. Property manager full time for other people, not for your own rentals. It it doesn't matter. You have to materially participate in your rental activities in addition uh, to hitting real estate professional status.
0: 100%. So Let's just play out the scenario real quick. So you're 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 a real estate professional who spent 750 hours in a real property trader business, right? Um, and more than half your total working time. Now, what is the, how do you prove that you materially participated in your rental activities? There are seven tests that are all in the guide, but we're only going to focus on three today because those three are generally the only ones that are going to matter for a large majority of people out there. The first one is that you spend at least 500 hours on your rental activities. That's 500 hours. If you average it out, it comes out to be roughly 10 hours per week. That's one way to get there. Uh, the second way to get there is you do substantially everything for the activity, meaning you self-manage and really no one else helps you. You're, you're what, one person show. Uh, the third option is that you spend at least a hundred hours on the activity and no one other individual spends more time than you. Um, you know, in our experience, the ideal test to always pass is that 500-hour test. is very objective. It doesn't matter how much time anybody else spends. But those are the, those are the three tests that are going to help you qualify uh, fully as a real estate professional and allow you to take losses against your your other income.
1: Yeah, and so the, the that second test of completing substantially all of the activity, if you're self managing your portfolio. And you're doing a lot of the repairs yourself uh, and you're collecting the rents yourself, coordinating with tenants yourself, then you are completing substantially all of the activities. So you don't have to get 500 hours in to, to materially participate in your rental activities. And you still have to get 750 hours to qualify as a real estate professional, but there have been tax court cases. There was a tax court case where a guy had 64 hours of material participation and, and he completed substantially all the activity in those 64 hours during the year. And he was deemed to have materially participated in his rental activities. So it can be done. It's just that you have to do it all yourself. And, and actually this is something that we run into with partnerships every once in a while too. You know, if Tom and I are partners on a real estate venture and we are both trying to materially participate in the partnerships activities, if I spend You know 50 hours and tom spends another 50 hours then the substantially all test goes out the window right so then now we're looking at the the next test test number three which is more than 100 hours 100 hours and more than anybody else so now if i spend 101 hours i could be materially participating because i've spent 100 hours more than tom but then tom might go and spend 105 hours right so that he spends 100 hours and more than me. And now I'm not materially participating. So in partnerships, we actually often have to go for that 500-hour threshold, just the the safe harbor. If you hit 500 hours, then, then you get it and you're done.
0: 100%. So we've kind of went over now what it takes to qualify um, and there's some other questions. Some people ask generally in this, and that is, do you have to material participate in a, in each one of your rental properties, or can it be on your entire entire rental activities? And the short answer to that question is that you can make a grouping election that's only available to real estate professionals to treat your rental, all your rental activities as one activity for the purposes of this material participation test. So essentially you can take your entire rental business and you only have to basically meet these tests on the entire portfolio of your rentals and not on a test by test basis on a rental by rental basis. Although you could, if you wanted to theoretically do that. Um, there are,
1: there are significant risks. So this, so this is reg section 1469 uh, nine. We call it the nine election as a result. And there are risks of making this grouping election. When you make the grouping election, like Tom said, you do automatically group in all of your rental activities into one big rental activity. Any rental activity that you add in the future automatically gets grouped into it. But also when you sell rental activities later, you can't necessarily take previously suspended passive losses against the gain because you have to dispose of substantially all of the activity And the activity is your grouped rentals. So if I have 10 rentals in in an activity, I have to dispose of substantially all of it, which could easily be eight, nine, or even 10 rentals for me to take my previously suspended passive losses. So the main caveat here is don't do this alone. Make sure that you work with the CPA and uh, and analyze those previously suspended passive losses to determine what the risk is uh, of making this nine election.
0: Absolutely. Great to point out there. Definitely not something you want to be doing on your own. So, um, next question we usually get, and this is usually where a lot of people try to, uh, play around, which, uh, we, which, which is hard to do. And that is, can you qualify as a real estate professional while working a full-time or part-time job? And the answer to that question is, of course it depends, but generally speaking, if you're working a full-time job, that's the IRS generally looks at that as 2080 hours, maybe 2000 hours per year. And it is nearly impossible. Um, and as it's been proven by tax court cases that it's nearly impossible to qualify as a real estate professional. If you work a full-time job, that's not a real property trader business. There's only been one tax court case in which the taxpayer to go through extensive, um, Basically, uh, what's the word I'm looking for in here? Basically, I jumped through a lot of hoops to prove that he was a full-time real estate. Pro- he basically was a real estate professional while working at a full-time job. But it is easier to prove this or to qualify if you are working part-time.
1: Well, Nat, I think, are you, are you talking about Miller versus Commissioner, the boat pilot?
0: Yeah, that's the one where where he was working full-time or... Yeah. Right. Well,
1: yeah. So he, he was employed full time and I'm doing air quotes right now uh, for everybody listening, but he was employed full time, but his actual working hours uh, as a boat pilot were less than a thousand, which is what allowed him to, to substantiate real estate professional status. So that's the thing. It's like, if you, there've been a lot of people that have tried that have legitimately worked full time hours. Uh, A lot of people that have tried to also say that they work more in real estate than they do their full-time W-2 job hours um, and every single one has lost. And what we what we tell folks is, hey, look, it's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. We're optimists. <laughs> but it, it's it's next to impossible to say that you worked a full-time job and you spent more time in real estate than you did anywhere else. Uh, there There is a tax court case, Penley versus Commissioner, where the full-time job for the taxpayer amounted to 2,194 hours. And this is in the guide. So it's, it's, it's one that we talk about in the guide. Uh, the taxpayer claimed that they spent an additional 2,520 real estate professional hours for a total of 4,714 hours during the year. That's 4,714 working hours during the year. And that translates to 90-hour work weeks. 13 hour days. And it also assumes absolutely no vacation, sick days or holiday days. So that's spread out over 365 days. And you know, like I, I'm an entrepreneur and I have definitely spent 90, 100 hour weeks. I'm I'm sure that people listening go, well, that's part of the job, right? Like I'm a, I'm a physician and physicians spend insane hours or I'm an investment banker and we spend insane hours. But the question is, do you do that every single day for 365 days straight? And maybe you do which is why I say it's not impossible. (laughs) It's just next to impossible. And the problem is you don't have to convince me. You don't have to convince even the IRS. You have to convince the tax court. The IRS is going to tell you that you lose no matter what. And they're just going to say, no, 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 that's impossible. And they're going to try to discredit you. So you've got to convince a tax court judge. And you got to hope that the judge believes that you can actually work 13 hour days. So that's the thing. That, that's why the, the working full-time just typically is not going to fly. Most, most people understand that that's just not sustainable. And also, you have to have a really large portfolio to justify working 40-hour work weeks on your real estate. I mean, it's got to be a really large portfolio. Or it's got to be some insane rehab project that demands your full-time and attention. Uh, it, it's, it's, that's going to be a pretty big undertaking.
0: Yeah, and it's important to point out something that you know we see a lot throughout the tax court cases is that the tax court they're looking for credibility, right? Uh, and that's something that you also have to take into account: um, is your story credible? And there's been a number of tax court cases where they found that uh, the taxpayer in question's story or you know log whatever the case was, which is simply not credible. The entire case got pretty much, you know, thrown out at that point And oh, not thrown out. I mean, but it was pretty much the verdict was you don't qualify as a real estate professional. Your story's not credible and you're out of here. Um, <laughs> so this is just something that, you know, you have to take very seriously. Um, it's not something you could just go and fudge around. I know there's one task court case, I think where someone spent 54, 56 hours fixing a toilet and that's not going to happen. It's not credible. That's not credible. It's just not.
1: It would probably take me fifty-six hours to fix a toilet, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think my wife can attest
0: to that. Well, I mean, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible, but I mean, there was other things in that particular tax court case too that kind of just didn't add up. So, the, the bottom yeah. line here is it's got to be credible, credible. It's got to be reasonable. It's got to be believable, right? Um, you know, it, it just you don't want to play around with
1: that. Yeah, we we have some funny funny things such as the fifty-six hour toilet. Uh, construction. We, we, we've got some funny things that we'll talk about here in a few minutes in terms of credibility. But re- real quick on the part-time versus full-time. So there have been a couple tax court cases. If you if you do legitimately work a part-time job, uh, perhaps you have a 10, 20, 30-hour shift. And, uh, and it, it's all about the hours you spend, right? It's not about how much money you make. You can, you can make a million dollars a year and only work 10 hours a week and still be able to qualify as a real estate professional because you spend more time in real estate than you do on your 10-hour a week. Million dollar a year job, even though that would be pretty sweet uh, if if those jobs exist. But uh, the, the, the you can do it. So the Miller versus Commissioner was what we just talked about. The boat pilot, he was quote unquote full time, but he didn't actually uh, he didn't actually work full time. there was another tax court case, Escalante versus Commissioner, where the taxpayer was a school teacher, and the taxpayer basically logged the the working hours at school as being only opening to closing bell. And and you would think at, at first, oh, a school teacher is going to, going to be able to satisfy this because they get summers off, right? Relatively lighter schedule compared to most full-time employees. But because they only work, they only logged opening to closing bell, they didn't log any of the grading papers, any of the traveling for training and conferences that the teacher had to go to, to Tom's point, the tax court deemed them to not be credible and basically threw their time log out. So it's just important to understand that if, you're going, if you are working a part-time job or a full-time job, if you really want to go for it, uh, you need to log your legitimate hours at your job. There was another tax court case where the taxpayer, um, his timesheets for his day job amounted to like 1,900 hours. But then he told the tax court case, he testified that he actually only worked 1,600 hours. <laughs> and so that guy, is he lying to the tax court or is he lying to his employer Uh, Either way, not a place that you want to be. But the point is is that you need to be religious about logging your time if you're working a part-time or a full-time job because the IRS will come after you. I would expect an audit. They will come after you and you're going to have to prove that you are a credible person. So log every second of your day at your full-time job or part-time job and on the real estate professional side.
0: Yeah. And, and just remember, it's not us you have to convince. It's not even the IRS you have to convince. Cause like Brandon said before, you're guilty until proven innocent with the IRS, but it's the task court case, a judge, you're going to have to convince that your story is credible and, and reasonable. And that's who you're going to have to convince. So that's why it's so important to track this stuff because without it, you know, you're, you're pretty much going up against, you know, you're going up against the battle with no ammo, right? So track your hours and make sure you have a credible story.
1: Hundred percent. And sometimes when we go through the real estate professional status and and we kind of walk everybody through the regulations and the requirements, walk our clients through. Sometimes they go, "Well, you guys are conservative," and we're like, "No, we're not." Um, but this is just these are the citations that make this real. <laughs> you don't have, like Tom said. You don't have to convince me or Tom. We can take a tax position as long as we have a fifty percent chance of it being upheld. Uh, you don't have to convince us. That's a long runway. You got to convince the auditor and we don't like our clients to be set up to lose in these situations. So let's talk about how many properties you need to qualify. There are, so, so again, it's not about the number of properties. It's all about the number of hours that you spend in a real property trader business compared to your other activities. So you only need one property to qualify. Uh, There's Smith first commissioner. That's a tax court case where the taxpayer was a 63 year old disabled veteran. He had no other job due to being disabled and he took care of his one three unit property, made himself available 24 seven. He maintained his rental himself. He was the property manager and performed all tasks. He went to the property on an ongoing basis to kick homeless people off the grounds. He took the trash out, did all the maintenance and the tax court sided with him, basically said, yeah, we, we agree that you are a real estate professional. So you only need one rental. You don't need a lot. You only need one rental. It's all about the hours. Now, if you have a property manager, right? So in this Smith case, he was the property manager. If you have a property manager, you need a lot more property. Uh, it's, but again, it's not a, people ask, well, is that 10 properties? Is it 15? Is it 20? Does it, it's not about that. It's about the hours that you spend. I could have 15 properties and not materially participate in those rental activities because I have a property manager. I could have a hundred properties and not materially participate because I have property management, great property management, but I could have one property right up the street from me. That's a rehab project that I sink a ton of time into rehabbing, getting it rent ready. And that one project gets me to material participation. So again, not about the number of properties. It's about the hours that you spend in your rental real estate activities
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So next question is generally what hours do and don't count towards the real estate professional status? And one thing that we have to, that we have to point out here is that all the hours you spend have to be material, material participation hours in a real property trader business. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. What does and does not count? Um, one of those is basically, you know, research and education time. Right. Um, and to kind of just look at this objectively when you're doing, when you're going to a course or you're reading a book or you're listening to a podcast, are you materially participating in a real property trader business by doing that activity and, if for the most part, the answer is going to be no. In some cases, if you are have to take continuing professional education, also known as CPE, maybe to maintain a real estate license to be a realtor or a broker, then yes, perhaps you know that can count as being a you know materially participating in your business because it's required. But generally speaking, education are going to count towards uh, is going to count towards investor hours, which generally does not qualify, does not count towards the real estate professional hours.
1: And, and here's a really quick litmus test for anybody listening that you that, that's going to keep you out of a lot of trouble. The litmus test is if the day-to-day operations of your rental property trader business and your rentals, or sorry, your real property trader business and your rentals, if the day-to-day operations are unaffected by the hours that you are logging, then those logged hours don't count. Which is why education and research hours don't count. I can go take thousands of hours of education. It doesn't mean that without the education hours, I would not have collected rents. I would not have paid bills on my real property, on my real estate. It's just unrealistic. It's not an argument that's going to make sense. I could say I've taken specific education and directly tie that to better operations, more profitability, increased rents, but that's a stretch. So just understand that if your if the hours that you are logging don't affect your real property trader business, they don't affect your rentals, the day-to-day operations, then those hours do not count. And if you don't actually have a real property trader business, we talk to investors all the time who they, uh, they, they, they are starting the real estate side, right? So they've got the cash, they're looking around for properties. If you don't have a real property trader business or a rental activity, the hours that you're logging don't count because you don't have a real property trader business to log them against. You haven't started yet, right? So you have to. Well, we have to keep in mind this litmus test: if your day-to-day operations of your real property trader business or your rental activities are not affected, the hours do not count.
0: And yeah, he, he, here's another thing, specifically on the education, you know, and, and research side too. Got to think about it this way. Would a real estate professional, someone who's working full-time in a real, real property trader business, essentially, um, are they spending hundreds of hours or a significant portion of their time on education? Probably not. Probably not. You want to know why? Because they're too busy operating a real property trader business. They don't have time to spend hundreds of hours on education. And if they do, it's not even going to matter because they're booking so much time towards their operational activities in a real property trader business. That the time they spend listening to podcasts like this, the time they spend reading books, et cetera, are not even a matter because they're going to meet the test without it.
1: Right. Exactly. And, and that's the thing. That, that's the key. They are going to meet the hour tests without the education and the research hours because that's what they're doing for their livelihood. That's the level that you need to get to. So, and the reason that we're kind of harping on this too is the education and the research hours is where we see a lot of the abuse. Uh, and when I say abuse, I just mean that people are logging these education research hours to overcome the hour requirements, the 750 hour requirements for real estate professional status, the 500 hour requirement for material participation, one of those seven tests. They think that if they log the education, and the research hours to get over those thresholds, then they're good to go. But you just, you have to understand that those hours do not affect the day-to-day operations of your rentals. They are not personal service hours. They are investor level hours you are logging those hours to specifically avoid the passive activity loss limitations, uh, which the, which uh, there's a specific code section. If I can find it, I will.
0: It's, it's temp reg section uh, Uh, 1.469-5T F2I cap B, which states that one of the principal purposes for performance such uh, of such work to avoid the disallowance under section 469 and the regulations thereunder, under of any loss or credit from such activity basically will not count towards the real estate professional status.
1: Yeah. So to, to translate, if you're logging hours to get over the passive activity loss limitations and those hours, again, do not affect the day-to-day operations of your rentals, then that section of the code is going to say, too bad those hours don't count. And that's what the IRS is going to rely on when they audit you. That is pulled. That's in the IRS audit technique guide, which we have linked to in the uh, the, the 12,000 word guide on real estate professional status that we gave you. But just so that you understand that we're not crazy, okay? I've got an actual tax court case where this was all proven out. It's half a poor, I hope I'm saying that right, half a poor versus commissioner. TC memo 2012. So 2012 tax court case. Here's a, here's, the, here's a quote from the ruling. The taxpayer lost. Okay. So the tax court ruled that the taxpayer was not a real estate professional for tax purposes. And here's a quote. Most of the petitioners' real estate activities in 2006 consisted of researching potential investment properties throughout the United States. Ongoing involvement consisted mainly of approving rent prices and tenants We are not persuaded that Ms. Prang spent more than one half of her personal services in a real property, trade, or business. Additionally, if you read that court case, you'll also see that the taxpayer logged a significant amount of time attending classes and seminars on real estate investing and traveling to those classes and seminars. All of that was basically disallowed by the tax court. It uh, wasn't specifically disallowed by the tax corp, but in the aggregate, it was deemed to not affect the day-to-day operations of the rental activities. And that's the key. So just understand that if your education, your research, whatever else, your travel, if it doesn't affect the day-to-day operations of your rental real estate, it's not going to count.
0: So that's a great question. And the, the question, next question is, well, okay, well, what hours do count, right? And uh, generally what's going to count is like Brandon's been saying, Uh, activities that affect the day-to-day operations of your business. And for landlords specifically, I know there's a lot of landlords probably listening to this podcast here today. And by the way, I just want to jump in and just say this for everybody who's been listening. If you don't know where to get the guide, we're going to link it down in the show notes below. So it's going to be in the show notes below. I guess we should have told everybody where to get the guide, huh? I just I just realized that. I just realized we didn't tell anybody. So again, guys, in the show notes below, everybody's listening. In the show notes below, it'll be below. But again, yeah, you, can to-
1: also go, you can also go to the realestatecpa.com and hover over the education tab and you'll see the, the uh, what is it called? The guide to real estate professional status. That's the guide. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Good call, Tom.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. Thank you. Anyway, back to what I was saying. So what hours do count towards the real estate professional status? If all those hours we just discussed don't count, what does count? And it's again, again, going to be hours that affect the day-to-day operations of your business. And this could mean, and this is, oh, this list will again be included in that guide, hours spent acquiring property, but not research hours, showing the property to prospective tenants, writing and placing Rental ads, taking tenant applications, running background checks, preparing and negotiating leases, cleaning units after tenants move out, maintaining the grounds, doing repairs yourself, doing improvements yourself, or arranging others to do them, and, and watching them do it does not count. Watching them do it, simply staring, watching them go back and forth as they do their work, does not count. Hiring a supervisor, excuse me, hiring a supervising prop, supervising property manager. Uh, purchasing supplies and materials for use on the rentals, inspecting the property, communicating with tenants and responding to their complaints, collecting rents, evicting tenants and traveling to your rental properties. As long as there's a business reason to do so. And again, that is a gray area. The travel is a gray area, but in some cases that would count.
1: Good stuff. And if you're thinking, gosh, that sounds like a lot of work. That's the entire point. (laughs) It is a lot of work, but that's exactly who these regulations are targeting. It's actual real estate professionals. So just remember, it's not something that you can. It's not something that you should aim to game. If you if you're trying to game this, just remember that it is a highly highly litigated. It's a, it's an audit target. It's highly litigated, and if you're trying to game it, that's going to come out, and you're probably going to lose. So don't try to game it. If you are actually a real estate professional, then let's do it 100%, you know? Um, But don't don't try to record hours or inflate hours because we're going to talk about next. I mean, what we're going to talk about next is it's all going to come out, and you're going to deem to be not credible. So who bears the burden of proof? You bear the burden of proof. You have to keep all documents, all records. You have to keep a time log. Um, you have to keep receipts. Uh, the time log can be an actual log. A lot of clients ask, well, a lot of um, people that we talk to ask, well, where should I keep my time log? Wherever you want. W- wherever you want, that's actually going to make you record the time. Some people use Toggle T-O-G-G-L. It's an actual timekeeping tool. Uh, a lot of our clients use Google Sheets because it can just be on your iPhone or, or Android as an application that you can just click and open up and put the date, the time, what you, what you did. So Google Sheets is a nice option. You can also use your calendar tool. So Google Calendar is fine. As long as you put notes as to what you did and, and who you met, that's what we're looking for. Now, remember too, that this is all about credibility. So you have to prove that you are a credible person if you are audited and taken to court. Uh, And that's what the court's going to be asking is, are you credible? Nobody can really, you know, verify the hours that you work. You're the only one that knows how many hours you work. But the point is is that you need to create a paper trail that tries to prove you actually worked the hours that you say that you worked. So just know that the tax court's going to subpoena financial records to try to tie everything out. They're going to subpoena credit card statements and bank records. And if you say that you're at the property on a Saturday performing repairs, Hopefully, your credit card statements show that you were swiping your credit card at Home Depot, buying materials. But there was a tax court case, Poor Mirzai. I, I always butcher this one when I say it. Poor Mirzai versus Commissioner. The taxpayer reconstructed her time log when she was audited. She had five rentals, nine units, and she did not qualify as a real estate professional once once reviewed the tax court did not did not side with her but one of the core reasons and this goes to the credibility piece one of the core reasons that they discounted all of her time log was because she would say on her time log that she was at the rentals performing services but when the tax court subpoenaed her credit card statements they saw that at the same time that she said on her time log she was at the rentals performing repairs and maintenance she was also swiping her credit card for purchases in london while she was traveling right? So the tax court just immediately says, yeah, this is not a credible time log. And unfortunately we can't side with you on this tax on, on this real estate professional status. So just make sure that your paper trail adds up.
0: Absolutely. It just goes back to the credibility, credibility aspect of it. It's not something you want to roll the dice on.
1: Yeah. And so, and so, but on the credibility piece, Escalante versus commissioner, the court held that the taxpayers' time log was not credible because it listed hundreds of hours for writing checks and reviewing mortgage statements. Hundreds of hours for writing checks. And so here's what the tax court did. They go, hey, look, like we have to consider our own personal experience in writing checks. We don't think that it takes hundreds of hours to write checks. So your credibility goes beyond what you claim and what you can substantiate. It also you have to you have to apply a reasonable, like what other people would reasonably do these activities in, which is why that 56 hour, you know, repairing the toilet wasn't going to fly either.
0: Absolutely. And there's another task court case, Harrison versus the commissioner. Um, this is uh, it looks like in 2019. So this is very recent. And uh, one of the things the taxpayer dig is they logged 93 to hundred hour, 105 hours of snow removal in a single year, as well as 73 hours watching contractors perform their work. And uh, that's not something that the tax court deemed to be credible.
1: In, in Lee versus Commissioner, this is the 56 hours to replace a toilet. Uh, there was 280 hours to close year-end books. Folks, it doesn't take our CPA firm. 280 hours to close clients you're in books, unless you're like a really large real estate syndicate or fund. So that's just a huge exaggeration. And in the same the same time log for Lee, the taxpayer showed spending 24 hours to replace blinds. I mean, just think about that. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. So your time log has to be credible.
0: Absolutely. So now the next part is, well, how does the IRS, if you are ever audited, uh, which you should expect to be when you're, when you're a real estate professional, should go in with that expectation that you will at some point be audited? How just do- because,
1: and, and just real quick, just because we want you to set yourself up for success. It doesn't mean that you're going to be audited if you claim real estate professional status, but we want you to go in to Tom's point with that expectation so that you create the paper trail that wins today. And on that note, it's incredibly important that you work with a tax advisor that's going to tell you what you need to hear to substantiate real estate professional status. It blows my mind how many tax advisors out there are willing to tell their clients that education and research hours count towards real estate professional status. That is what a client wants to hear. Right, if you're if you are interviewing CPAs and one CPA tells you education research hours count and another CPA tells you that they don't, who are you going to work with? You're going to work with the person most likely that hopefully not after you listen to this podcast, but most likely you're going to work with the person that tells you what you want to hear. Right, that you you want to count your education research hours because you want to make it easier on yourself to take your rental losses as non passive. But I want you to just understand that this is not a piece of the code that you need to game like that or that you want to game like that. You will plan on getting audited. If you get audited, those education research hours are going to get kicked out. So you need, to, you need to work with somebody that's willing to step up and tell you what you need to hear to win audits. And what you need to hear is that this stuff is serious. It's highly litigated. And you need to be an actual real estate professional performing actual services in order to hit this,
0: I just wanted to throw in there. I just before we go through this audit stuff in a little bit more detail, I just found something that I always found after reading through a lot of these tax court cases how many real estate, how many, there were, there's not many real estate court cases of uh, these court cases where people were clearly a real estate professional. Like I've never seen one where it's like, duh, this person's obviously a real estate professional. It's always the people who are on the border who are trying to, you know, who are maybe just going to skate by by being a real estate professional. That's how it's a big tax court. I've not seen a tax court case. Maybe Brandon has. I've not seen one where I was like, Whoa, this person's a real estate professional. Why, why are we even discussing this? Because it doesn't happen.
1: Well, and that's a great point, Tom. I mean, the, the people that legitimately are real estate professionals, they don't end up in tax court because they are legitimately real estate professionals. And the IRS is not going to spend their time and money on prosecuting somebody that they legitimately believe to be a real estate professional to begin with. So if if you yeah i mean that's just a great great point tom great point so kind of touching on the audit technique guide the irs is going to hone in on material participation so they're going to be looking for do you have a property manager if you do have a property manager on your rentals it's going to be really difficult for you to materially participate because rental acti- this is the this is coming from the irs audit technique guide rental activities by nature normally do not require significant day-to-day involvement. They're not time intensive. Most taxpayers using any outside management, uh, the only material participation test available to them is 500 hours, and they're not going to be able to hit that because of the outside management. They're just not materially participating. Uh, In many circumstances, an individual rental activity will not require 500 hours of participation, nor will a taxpayer have sufficient time available to spend 500 hours on each individual rental real estate activity. Now, again, this is coming from the IRS audit technique guide. The audit technique guide is what the IRS hands to its field auditors uh, to kind of set the stage for the audit. So This is prefacing everything. So they're going in with this understanding that your rentals are passive and that you don't actually have to spend a lot of time managing those rentals. So you have a huge burden, a huge threshold to overcome. And so when they examine your participation, they're gonna be questioning the time spent in all activities. They're gonna question personal, business, civic, family, hobbies. Uh, They're going to closely examine your documentation of time utilized for material participation in, in each of those activities. So track all of your time. They're going to look for time spent by others in the activity. So commissions, management fees, expenses for cleaning, maintenance, repairs. They're going to be looking at your profit loss statement for these types of expenses so that they can try to allocate some time to property management or to leasing or to cleaning and maintenance. Uh, they're going to look at your day-to-day involvement and in specific hours. Uh, they're going to request a time log. They're going to request a copy of any management agreement that you might have. If your management agreement says that the managers are doing everything, well, you've pretty much just lost your case, right? Uh, so, so you have to kind of take all of this in into account. Um, they're going to verify that one spouse meets both the 750 and the, real, and the greater than half your time test for real estate professional status on their own. So one spouse has to meet the 750 hours and more than half the time on their own. For, for purposes of material participation, Spouses can count each other's hours, but not for real estate professional status purposes uh, in and of itself. One spouse has to hit it on their own. And they're also going to look for whether spouses are are logging hours for each other. So that's something that we see a lot of when people come to us and they ask questions. It's, well, I've got this email set up because I'm the one that's doing all the work and uh, I'm signing for my spouse's name. And that's immediately a huge red flag. Uh, will the spouse that you're signing for, will they actually be able to come in and testify on any of this? Will they know the ins and outs of the business? Typically not. And again, we go back to the credibility piece. So just don't try to game the system. Make them actual, actually participate in the real estate.
0: That being said, you can look at more audit techniques in the guide that does link directly to the IRS ATG, the official audit guide. You can find that all in our guide. And also you can find more tax court cases that we did not discuss here today in the guide as well. But right now we're going to go ahead and talk about some common misconceptions and misunderstandings we often see about the real estate professional.
1: Yeah. So the first one is spending 750 hours in a real property. Sorry. The first one is not understanding that you have to spend 750 hours of personal services in a real property trader business in which you materially participate so, again, going back to that whole, oh, I can hit the 500 hour material participation test with my material participation hours, and then I could spend 250 of anything else. And that's just not true. It's 750 hours of personal service hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. There's no differentiation between real estate professional status hours and material participation hours, they are all one in the same. Very key to understand. The next one is don't rely on education and research hours. So we kind of went on a, a tangent about this. I'm not going to touch on it again, but just don't rely on the education and the research hours. Real estate professional status is highly litigated and you don't want those hours pushing you over the thresholds.
0: Absolutely. The next one is if one, if, if you're married, one spouse must hit the real estate professional status on their test on their own. So what that means is if you're married and one of the one one either you or your spouse wants to qualifies as real estate professionals you need to reach the seven hundred and fifty hour and more than half your total working time individually. One spouse must hit that test that part cannot be combined, so one person must meet the seven hundred and fifty hour and more than half the total working time test however however, both spouses' time can, can be combined for the material participation hours in Qualifying for your rental activities, so one spouse must meet that the hour test, and then once that test is met, then both spouses' time can count towards material participation on your rental activities.
1: Another mistake that we see is meeting the real estate professional tests, but failing to materially participate in your rental activities. So this is this this mistake is something that we see with a lot of people that are full-time in real estate. They're, they're constructing, building, developing, wholesaling, uh, sometimes lending. They're real estate agents and brokers. They are in real estate full-time, and they think that that in and of themselves will make their rental losses non-passive. But we have to remember that while you might be a real estate professional for tax purposes, it means absolutely nothing. You also have to materially participate in your rental activities. And talking about material participation... Another mistake that we see is failing to ever make that nine election, that grouping election to make all of your rental activities into one, one big group. That way you have to materially participate in the big group rather than each rental act- activity separately. The IRS will hit you for this in an audit. So make sure that you've made that nine election either currently or in sometime in the past. Uh, if you have multiple rentals, multiple rental activities and you're trying to make them all non-passive.
0: Absolutely. Having a a full-time non-real estate job. We've kind of discussed this already. Not going to go go too deep into it, but if you're working a full-time non-real estate job and you're trying to qualify as a real estate professional, first, you have to understand that it's nearly impossible. Not impossible, but nearly impossible. And if you are going to attempt to qualify, you must track your time at your full-time job as well as in real estate very, very closely because again, the burden of proof will be on you. And if this is litigated, you will have to prove that you spent more time in a real property trader business than your full-time job. And that being said, they can go to your employer and ask for your time records. So something that you do not want to mess around with, you want to be, make sure you protect yourself there. The same goes for having a part-time job. It's a non uh, real estate job. You also want to make sure you're keeping very accurate records for the same reasons just mentioned. The, the other one, the final one, is failing to keep a record or contemporaneous log of the time you spent in real estate. One thing that the IRS and task courts don't like is ballpark estimates. So you can't go and just say, Oh, well, you know, I must've spent, you know, two hours a day here, two hours a day there. It does not work. You have to have a log ideally that you created proactively and that does not look made up. There's been many task court cases where it appeared that the person in question went back and recreated their log only after the audit. I think there was one task court case where the time log was actually put on a calendar that had a copyright in a year that was later (laughs) than the year in question. So how could that be? How could you have a calendar with a copyright in a later year, but you proactively kept that log during the time that it was actually happening?
1: Yeah, yeah. It it was a 2009 copyright on a calendar that was recording 2008 activities <laughs> oh man but again it goes back to the credibility piece right it's just
0: i was gonna say the, the bottom line with that one is you got to keep a log you got to keep it on a proactive basis keep it as you're going you do it daily weekly but don't wait till years to pass and you go back and then try to recreate that log because you'll probably it'll probably look not credible at that point and as we discussed probably ad nauseum at this point, if the log is not credible, it can get thrown out of tax court, you're going to lose and you're going to have to pay back, ta- tax- back taxes, penalties, and interest. It'll be a very painful experience.
1: <laughs> very painful indeed. And the thing too, is that it's going to take you five to seven years to even get to that point, right? I mean, audits take a long time to start to initiate. They take a long time to play out. And if you go to tax court, you talk about another couple of years between rulings and appeals. I mean, how long do you want to lose sleep how many years of your life does that take off? Is that that's that's the question I always ask.
0: Yeah, yeah. and you know that's a, that's a great question to ask yourself. And I think I think that's the entire point we're trying to make with this guide, with this podcast episode, is that this is not a game. This is not a magic pill. There there is no there is no way. It's it's like losing weight. You're not going to lose weight by just sitting still. You have to you have to work in order for the real estate professional status to work for you. You have to work. Okay, it's not a magic pill. And that's the entire point we're trying to make here. And again, I just want to let everybody know you can get this guide, 1,200 words, over 30 pages, very detailed, probably the most thorough document you'll find on the internet on this. And uh, you can get that by following the link in the show notes below or by visiting the real estate professional, the com, and go into the education (laughs) section and you can find this guide there too as well.
1: And the, the hours that you spend reading this guide do not count towards real estate professional status.
0: Oh yeah, that would be education <laughs> hours and uh, those, th- those yeah. don't count. Even
1: those though it. it's in the education section, these do not count as material participation. Look, my, my final words on this, you have to be really, really careful who you take advice from related to real estate professional status. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. There's a lot of people that don't fully understand it. There's a lot of advisors that haven't read all the court cases on Section 469. Just be careful. This is not a section of the code. And and tax in general, actually, is not something where you should be looking for the advice that you want to hear. Uh, you, You always need to be objective. You need to be asking why. You need to be asking what ifs. And you need to find advisors that are willing to tell you what you need to hear, even if it's the dagger in the heart. And that's the role that we play for clients. We say, look, we are going to tell you what you need to hear to win, even if that makes you mad. Because we care about you and your success. And we care about your wealth building and protecting the wealth that you worked so hard to create. And the only way to do that is to tell you exactly what you need to hear to substantiate these types of tax positions and to win IRS audits. We'll help you do it. We are very much optimistic Uh, Even though this whole podcast might sound pessimistic. We are very much optimists. We just, we have, especially as it pertains to real estate professional status, we often find that we have to reset expectations at the beginning. We have to be the dagger in the heart for a lot of people um, and, and help them understand exactly how they can qualify for real estate professional status
0: believe it or not, once we get past all that, the conversation on how to actually qualify actually becomes pretty easy. It's not, you're not going to take an hour-long hour session to, to tell you that. We could do it very cleanly and very quickly, um, but you just have to listen. And you have to understand this is not a game like Brandon just said.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at realestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.